This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey everyone, Laszlo Montgomery here. I'm back again with another episode. No 40-day wait this time. Number 175, a mini milestone. Can you believe it? Thank you to all of you, all my stalwarts who've been listening since the very beginning, going back to 2010, and to everyone else who has joined in since and spread the word and helped build the worldwide CHP community. Thanks for all your support and your listenership. There are so many great things you can say about Chinese culture. There's a reason why it's one of the world cultures that is studied and appreciated in the kind of numbers it's attracted. This must be partly due to China's longevity as a civilization and the head start this gave them on most everyone else. This longevity meant that the centuries of wisdom and the artistic, literary, and technological achievements of the ancients had a lot of time to percolate and develop and keep getting better. When we say the ancients, we mean those Masters who lived during the Zhou, the Han, the Jin, Sui, and Tang, the real olden days of ancient China. China's earliest beginnings as an organized civilization till about the 9th century. Now, I don't want to execute a whole core dump on you with all the names of these past greats who lived from Zhou to Tang. The point I want to make is that by the time of our story today, this past literary and artistic heritage had by now been perfectly baked. By the time of the Song, wherever you might wander, the main thoroughfares or back streets of Kaifeng, you were almost always surrounded by aspiring literati. In this era of such achievements in the arts and letters, you really had to be good to stand out. So our subject today is one of those guys that stood out. By the time of the northern Song Dynasty, 960 to 1126, after so many years of compounding interest, the merits of the great gentleman scholar officials of the day had reached heights that even in their own time, educated people knew it was the farthest Chinese culture had come. The Tang was great, but wasn't the Song. We all know from past CHP episodes and from that Huizong four-part series, there was this sword of Damocles always hanging over China from the steppes north and west of the Yellow River basins. But despite the potential menace, by the 11th century, times had never been better. The Song army had managed to maintain a relative peace in a truncated but unified China, at least for a little while, more than 100 years. That's certainly long enough to be considered a Pax Seneca. Nothing beats peace and prosperity as far as being a contributing factor that might lead to a great leap forward in literature and the fine arts. Elsewhere in this time period we're talking about the Northern Song. It was mid to late 11th century, the high Middle Ages in Europe, the rise of the 
Seljuk Turks, the Fujiwaras, still a force in Japan, Islamic science and learning unparalleled anywhere on earth, except maybe in Song, China. This was the timestamp for today's episode. He had many names, but he's known mainly by two, Su Dongpo and Su Shi. I'll use them uh, interchangeably in this episode. Now, I'm not going to say he was the greatest writer, calligrapher, and painter of all time, but he's right up there. If there was a pantheon of the most sacred cows in classical Chinese art and literature, Su Shi is in that group. The eight great men of letters of the Tang and Song dynasty. He's a halfway decent bellwether of greatness. In Chinese, this exclusive list was known as the Tang Song. It included names that you know, maybe you're hearing for the first time, but for scholars of classical Chinese literature, these are the biggest names. Han Yu, Liu Zongyuan, Ouyang Xiu, Su Xun, Su Shi, Su Zhe, Wang Anshi, and Zhang Gong. Su Xun, one of the names on that list, was Su Shi's father. And Su Zhe was Su Shi's younger brother by two years. And from what I read... Sushir's mother and two sisters were no slouches either. Quite a family, I bet. Father and two sons made up almost 38% of the eight most celebrated scholars of the two most renowned dynasties in Chinese history. For me, at least, I got this hang-up that unless you can read and appreciate his literary works in the original Chinese or you're expert enough to look at his calligraphy and paintings with a discerning, and educated eye. It's hard to know what makes Su Shi so special. Even me. I mean, I studied Chinese all these years. I mean, I could read it okay, but no way I could read the prose, essays, and poems of Su Dongpo and fully grasp the meaning, subtlety, and significance. And what sets him apart from all the other brilliant scholars of his day? There were, there were so many. Even with these limitations in language and training, though... I think if you're interested in Chinese history and you love Chinese culture, it's still good to know who some of these giants were. Reading Su Shi in translation is better than nothing. His work is all over the internet. So let's look at not only one of China's greatest men of arts and letters, but also one of the most admired, Su Shi or Su Dongpo. The thing that makes the most renowned scholars and artists stand out was their mastery of a combination of skills rather than simply excelling as the best calligrapher or the best painter. Now, there were plenty of amazingly talented one-trick ponies walking the streets of Kaifeng back in the 11th century. For someone trying to make it, this was a tough crowd. So much talent all around. In order to stand out, one had to have achieved mastery in multiple disciplines. That's what Su Shi was all about. When you go from biography to biography about Su Shi, they all rattle off his areas of expertise, which reads like a list of Chinese culture's main bullet points. In his own day, let alone all these centuries later, he was acknowledged by his peers as a talented writer of prose, lyric poems, essays, a poet, a painter, calligrapher, pharmacologist, competent government official, statesman, gastronome, philanthropist, tea master and composer of great tea poems, a civil engineer, 
And along the way, besides being outstanding and admired in so many disciplines, he was beloved by the people wherever he was sent to serve on behalf of the emperor. You'd think the way the good people of Hangzhou carry on about Su Dongpo, that he might have been one of their native sons. Well, he was not from Hangzhou. In fact, he wasn't even from Zhejiang province. Su Shi was another of the greats to come out of Sichuan. His hometown was Meishan on the Min River, nestled in between Lushan, Ya'an, and Chengdu. So you can bet Su Dongpo was never lacking for great tea and tea culture. And you could be doubly sure that Su Dongpo is the main tourist attraction in Meishan today. Su Dongpo, Su Shi, he had something in common with Elvis. They were born on the same day, January 8th. 898 years apart in 1037. I already mentioned the renown of his father, Su Xun. Back then and even today, Su Shi, his father Su Xun, and younger brother Su Zhe are known and immortalized as the San Su, the three Su's. Su Shi grew up in Meishan and had obvious talents that were no doubt nurtured by his parents. He studied first under a local Taoist priest, though he embraced Buddhism later in life. He was a lifelong Taoist, and his Taoist beliefs and ways of looking at things bled through in a lot of his work. In time, his mother took up the role as his primary educator. The two Sioux brothers grew up and received as good an education as anyone could get who had parents like they did. When it came time, Father Su Xun took 21-year-old Su Shi and 19-year-old Su Zhe to the capital, where both brothers passed the civil service exams with the highest scores. Su Shi particularly distinguishing himself among all the candidates of that crop of aspiring holders of the Jin Shi degree in 1057. Their father, Su Xun, never attained Jin Shi status, but that didn't get in the way of achieving literary excellence. He made a killing as a silk merchant and lived to see his sons achieve this coveted rank. It also didn't hurt Su Shi at all that no less a personage than the subject of CHP episode 71, yes, Ouyang Xiu himself, acted as a mentor and a kind of early sponsor. Because of the buzz about Su Shi's exam responses when he achieved Jin Shi status, he attracted this grand man of Chinese culture. Having someone like Ouyang Xiu in your corner when you're just starting out in your career would be like coming fresh out of college with a cinema degree and having Steven Spielberg, you know, take you under his wing to show you the ropes. Because of his outstanding pedigree and having Ouyang Xiu as his bobo, he climbed up the ladder faster than others. He had married at age 17. Su Shi was not only blessed with one incredible wife, he was blessed with three. His first wife, Wang Fu, was a local Sichuan girl. He was very devoted to her, and she always had his back, looking out for Su Shi, advising him who to hang with, who to avoid. When he began serving in the bureaucracy around 1060, she guided him and helped him get his career off the ground. Kaifeng was a dangerous place politically, and Su Shi was the amiable type who needed a wife to remind him to keep his mouth shut and who to stay away from. Wang Fu died in childbirth, young, in 1065. And of course, this impacted Su Shi profoundly. Some of his best-known poems and lyric poems 
are dedicated to her memory and his love for her. Well, as I said earlier, this time, mid-11th century, as far as China was concerned, it was the best of times. And the center of the universe back then was in Hunan province, on the banks of the Yellow River, in the city of Kaifeng. Song aristocrats were mostly all filthy rich, educated families. They all lived in Kaifeng or any of the other larger urban areas. Like their fellow aristocrats around the world, they lived off the income from their estates that they acquired or were granted. They had it made. Collecting great works and designing gardens was a major pastime in that day. From the emperor on down to the smallest private individual collectors, priceless treasures that accumulated over the millennia abounded. Regrettably, though, most of it will get carted off to Manchuria by the Jurchens after they took over. One of the most striking differences between the swells of the Tang versus the Song is that back in the Tang, these rough and often violent competitions and equestrian and martial sports, they were a big thing. And to be an aristocrat and kill enemies on the battlefield was you know, considered glorious. So many of these Tang Leaders and aristocrats back then were, you know, mixed with the cultures of the surrounding steppe. They were a rougher people, though, of course, very refined in the arts and literature. The Song aristocrats, on the other hand, they didn't go in for horses and violent games. Song men of letters didn't want to break a sweat if they didn't have to. Soldiering wasn't the life for these Song Aristocrats. By their day, if you needed soldiers, the thing to do was to go recruit them from the lower classes or, or pay mercenaries. The tradition of military service had less importance among the haves who believed this was more the work of the have-nots. The cool literati thing to do back in the salad days of the Song Dynasty was to relax with your friends and colleagues in any number of tea houses and try out your latest literary witticisms on each other whilst engaging in dolcha competitions. If you remember from the CHP 10-part series on the history of tea, the way they did it back in the song was to use powdered, crushed tea leaves to make their tea. And rather than steep the tea leaves like they began to do in the Ming, they would use a whisk to whip the powdered tea and boiled water into a froth and serve it so that it not only tasted divine and was aesthetically pleasing, but was also perfectly prepared to the standards of the Song beautiful people. In the world of tea culture, which includes poetry and other literary works, as well as painting and ceramics, Su Shi, Su Dongpo, is considered one of the greats. Growing up in the tea country of Sichuan, the province where tea was first cultivated, it was no wonder Su Shi knew his Camellia Sinensis. He was a tea connoisseur who stood out in an age where even Emperor Huizong himself would duel with his courtiers in docha, or tea battles. So in addition to all his other talents and reasons for high repute, Su Shi is one of the several rock gods in the world of tea culture. In 1068, his career riding high Widowed Su Shi married wife number two. She was Wang Runjie. In this second marriage, Su Shi had a partner who not only stuck with him through thick and thin, she took care of him and played a supporting role, being there for what is arguably called Su Shi's most productive and acclaimed period for his writing and painting. 
His political career from here on out was a roller coaster ride of ups and downs. This wife is remembered for sticking by her man and softening the hardships he faced. Wang Runjie followed him around to his various postings. As far as being an official goes, Su Shir left his mark here and there. Of course, the Su Di, the Su Causeway that crosses Westlake and Hangzhou, being his most famous example. Su Shir is strongly associated with Hangzhou. He first went there in 1071 when the political heat got too hot at the palace and he was under fire by the reformers. Hangzhou suited Su Shi quite well. His second posting there lasted from 1089 to 1091. We'll get to that in a minute. It wasn't all champagne wishes and caviar dreams for Su Shi. As respected as he was for his erudition and many talents, he did have the misfortune, or good fortune, depending on how you look at it, well, misfortune for him, of competing at the top when the most sensitive matter of social and political reforms became the signature issue of the day. Yes, you remember these, Xinfa, the new policies ushered in during the time of the Shanzong Emperor. 1069, the talented and respected scholar official, Wang Anshi, became the chancellor and immediately began ushering in all kinds of sweeping reforms of core fundamental issues of the day, commerce, industry, the military, education, the social safety net, and agriculture, to name a few. These reforms ushered in during the 1070s shook the very foundations of Song Dynasty Chinese society from the top down. There were three main guys who came from the conservative camp. These were Sima Guang, Ouyang Xiu, and our boy Su Shi. They thought these reforms would bring ruin on the country, and they always had their heels dug in deep to slow things down and argue against the implementation of changes that they believed disrespected and ran roughshod over traditional Chinese values and laws. Su Shi and others believed that the ancients of the Zhou and the Han should be looked to as models of propriety and how to maintain a nice, harmonious society, to use a term from more recent history. Now, when I say they made up the conservatives who opposed these reforms, it was slightly more complicated than that. Like the two main political parties in the American system, not everybody on the same side spoke with one single voice. The conservatives were split into three main factions. The Sichuan faction was the one Su Shi was part of, being from Sichuan at all. It was called that because the core of this group were none other than Su Shi and his brother Su Zhe. Their esteemed father, Su Xun, had already passed in 1066, five months before the Battle of Hastings on the other side of the world. One of their opposing factions was the Luoyang faction of Cheng Yi, Cheng Yi was a Luoyang-based philosopher who had similar politics as Su Shi, but they couldn't see eye to eye on some points, and somehow these two conservatives became political rivals. Now, the third anti-reform faction was led by the great historian Sima Guang. He wrote the Zizhi Tongjian, the Comprehensive Mayor in Aid of Governance. This work discussed in past CHP episodes traced 
Chinese historiography from the Zhou to the Northern Song. It was one of the crowning achievements of the Shenzong Emperor's reign and provided Sima Guang with a nice degree of immortality for his contribution to recording and preserving China's history. But Su Shi couldn't stop himself from picking fights with these two factions. The failure of these men to join together and find common ground was a contributing factor as to why they could not influence the direction and scope of these reforms. Su Shi was one of the powerful and influential voices in the capital, in Kaifeng, who said these reforms being introduced by Wang Anshi went too far. In essence, he was making the same battle cry conservatives the world over make. Why rush? What's wrong with the way things are right now? Fix what's broken. Don't discard old traditions so easily. Su Shi got caught up in the thick of the battle. He had a unique way of saying things. The reformers were always looking for some way to discredit him and bring him down. These were very volatile times in the 1070s. In our day, if you just talk about any single hot-button issue, like health care, and try to carry out some civil public discourse on the matter, you put your whole political career in jeopardy. Well, with these new policies, these xinfa of Wang Anshir's time, it was like taking all of the hottest-button issues of our day and making sweeping changes across the board at the same time. Well, needless to say, a few feathers got ruffled. But as long as Wang Anshi had Emperor Shenzong watching his back, he was untouchable, like it always was in Chinese imperial history. If the emperor said it was okay, it was okay. No one could say anything. And whenever and wherever the emperor was involved, you really had to tread lightly. The emperor was more than just one person. He always had people around him, whispering in his air, taking advantage of who had access and therefore influence over him. That's how Su Shi got done in. He had stood up and criticized these reforms and made himself a target for powerful political opponents who had bigger friends than he did. He had directly criticized Wang Anshi in a poem written in 1079 that pointed at some particulars of his policies and put them in a negative light. This went down in the annals of Song history as the Wutai poem incident. Someone from the other side jumped on this and used this poem as evidence to show Su Shi's disloyalty to the emperor. Well, one thing led to another, and after... 103 days in prison in 1080, Su Shi found himself marginalized, living in the wilderness of Huangzhou in Hubei province. Huangzhou is present-day Huanggang, Wuhan's next-door neighbor to the east. He had just narrowly escaped a death sentence, something that would contribute to his later embrace and study of Buddhism. Su Shi spent six years in political Siberia. Not a good time for him as far as furthering his political career went and having an influential voice in the capital. But it was during this period that Su Shi made the transformation from Su Shi to Su Dongpo there in Huanggang on the east slope of a hill where he built his residence. He took on the literary name of Dongpo. Dong means east. And Po means a slope, eastern slope. 
And here is where, in 1081, the new and improved Su Dongpo announced himself to the world. And with his loving, supportive, and dutiful wife, Wang Runjie, at his side, he made the best of a bad thing. He completely embraced this nice life at Dongpo, or Eastern Slope, working in his rice field, tending to his fruit and mulberry trees, writing, meditating, reflecting on his life, studying Buddhism, and mingling with the local Huangzhou peasants. He called himself Dongpo Jishi. A Jishi is a retired scholar. It could also mean a kind of a lay Buddhist. And like I said, at Dongpo, he came out with some of his best stuff. Out of this period came, arguably, his three most famous poems. Chirbifu, Ho Chirbifu, and Nianu Jiao Chirbi Huaigu. These were poems inspired by a drunken trip down the Yangtze River Su Dongpo took with some of his pals on the night of August 12th, 1082. He sailed past Chirbi, Red Cliffs, the moment creating a sensation that, coupled with the drink and reflecting on his circumstances, overwhelmed him with emotion. Many who came before and who followed Su Dongpo to this sacred site were overcome with similar emotions, viewing that hallowed location in Chinese history where 874 years before Su Shi took in the sites. During the winter of 208-209, Zhuge Liang, Lu Su, Zhou Yu, Cheng Pu, Sun Quan, Liu Bei, and a cast of thousands stopped Cao Cao's massive army of 800,000 men and who knows how many vessels. These three odes to Red Cliffs were written at a challenging time for Su Shi, a victim of northern Song politics. Anyway, two of the three poems were written in the Fu style. The third one, Meditations on Red Cliff, was written in the Tsi style. Tsi poetry has been pigeonholed as, as lyric poetry. It was sung. Tsi poetry goes back to the early Zhou dynasty and first became big in the Tang. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Under Su Shi in the song, this Tsi form of lyric poetry is said to have reached its apex. It's a pretty ancient literary form. Now, I'm not going to be a poser and say I know a lot about this sliver of Chinese culture that gave Su Shi his greatest literary renown. Yeah, he built the Su Causeway across West Lake, and he was part of the political struggle that went on at the highest level of the state regarding these sweeping reforms. But as far as Su Shi's literary achievements are concerned, I read in more than a couple sources that it was for his body of Tzu poetry that he left behind, this lyric poetry done in the ancient style, that many who know more than I do say he achieved the pinnacle of his literary greatness. Another masterwork Su Shi dropped on everyone in 1082 was the Han Shi Tie. Along with the celebrated names Huang Tingjian, Mi Fu, and Tsai Xiang, Su Shi is known 
as one of the Song Sujia, one of the four great calligraphers of the Song. The poem commemorating this Chinese festival when only cold foods are consumed came first, followed by Su Shi's calligraphic work of this poem. Han Shi is the holiday that occurs right before Qingming in April. In this poem, Su Shi expressed his emotions and sadness at his situation. Somehow, this calligraphic scroll in Su Shi's own hand made it all the way down to the 1940s. And at the heat of the Chinese Civil War, it was secreted to Taiwan and now hangs in the National Palace Museum in Taipei. This Han Shitie and two other works by Wang Xizhi and Yan Zhenqing are considered by some to be the three most prized and renowned works of Chinese calligraphy of all time. Su Shi had been handed this low-level post out in the political boondocks of Huangzhou, no offense to Hubei province. Now, despite his reversal of fortune, wherever he went, he was diligent at his job as an official. And this Huangzhou posting was no exception. He was hands-on wherever he went, mingling with the masses, and by all accounts, he consistently served his constituents well. You might be interested to know one of the stories attributed to Su Shi involved his solution to the problem of rampant infanticide in the Huangzhou countryside. He observed that the average peasant family seemed to end up with three children, two boys and a girl, and any children born after that threshold would be drowned at birth. Su Shi felt that if only the parents and his prefect would wait a few days and not act so recklessly and hastily, they would grow attached to their newborn infant and choose to keep it. He helped to found an organization to educate the villagers. It was something like the BBC series, I don't know if you've heard of it, Call the Midwife. I just started season five. You'd have all these people from the local organization who would reach out to all those pregnant women and you know, work with them and did what they could do to put any and all thoughts of infanticide out of the prospective parent's head. Su Shi recruited a retired and respected local official and a resourceful Buddhist monk to run the organization. Now, when Su Shi got banished, it's not like he was the only one. A lot of conservatives got the same treatment and were sent far away from Kaifeng, removed from positions of power and influence. When the reformist champion, the Shanzong Emperor, died in 1085... That created an opening for the conservatives. The new emperor was the nine-year-old son of Shenzong and the older brother to the Huizong emperor who would follow. This Zhezong emperor and his minority and all was completely under the thumb of his formidable grandmother, Empress Dowager Gao. She was the Shenzong emperor's mother. Empress Dowager Gao pulled the strings until she passed from the scene in 1093. And she had never been a fan of the reform faction. With her in charge, all the disgraced conservatives, including Su Shi, got called back from the brink. Once Sima Guang, Su Shi, and other like-minded individuals sat back in their old seats of power, many of the reforms first instituted by Wang Anshi by early 1086 began to be dismantled. Sima Guang made quite a comeback and was made Zhezong's chancellor. Despite their intense political rivalry, Wang Anshi and Su Shi were quite friendly. I didn't 
emphasize this much, but besides being the chancellor and reformer in charge, Wang Anshu was also a very great and acknowledged literary master. This scholarly aspect was the force that found these two. In 1084, Su Shi wrote a poem called Reply to Wang Anshu, Former Chief Counselor. It read, Riding an ass, I come from afar to visit you. Still imagine you as healthy as I knew. You advise me to buy a house at your next gate. I'd like to follow you, but it is ten years too late. This was a happy period for Su Dongpo. He no doubt rejoiced to be back in the capital, hanging out again with all his literati friends. In 1089, he will receive his second posting to Hangzhou, and it's during this time that the Su Di got built. The Su Causeway was not just some ornamental footbridge. Its construction came out of dire necessity. West Lake had become all grown over with vegetation and mud. And irrigation that was fed from the lake became affected and the farmers suffered. By dredging the lake and building this 2.6-kilometer causeway out of the materials they scraped off the bottom, not only gave Westlake a whole new sightseeing attraction, the farmers were well-served and benefited from this simple and elegant civil engineering feat. In addition to the Su Causeway, Su Dongpo left his mark in Hangzhou in another way. He supposedly donated 50 ounces of gold from his own purse to fund a hospital to help the city's poor. Just another story that contributes to Su Dongpo's reputation and history as a man of the people. Whilst in Hangzhou, well, it may have been during this time, one of China's great regional dishes was created. It's attributed to Su Dongpo, but it's one of those who knows kind of things. Dongpo roll, or Dongpo pork, is what the dish is called. I'm going to admit, besides being a fan of this dish, greasy fat and all, I went to Lo Wai Lo in Hangzhou, overlooking West Lake on the second floor, and ordered Dongpo roll, enjoying it in the very same room where Premier Zhou and many other CCP and ROC luminaries once sat. I know this is a touristy thing to do, but I did it. I'm not ashamed at all to admit it. Did it twice, in fact. Dongpo roll, Dongpo pork, is basically a two to three inch cube of pork belly that's slowly, slowly braised in such a way that despite that big nasty layer of fat underneath the skin, it's not so oily or fatty tasting. Now, provided you're not a vegetarian or don't eat pork, it's a gastronomic delight. Whether Su Dongpo invented the dish during his Huangzhou or Hangzhou days or not at all, hard to say. But it is certainly a Hall of Fame dish that is strongly associated with the great city of Hangzhou. I don't eat it too often, but when I do, I think of its namesake, as I do with uh, Tang whenever I have my General Zhou's chicken. There were four famous gastronomes in Chinese history. Su Dongpo was one of them. The other three were Ni Zan, the late Yuan, early Ming painter, Xu Wei, the Ming painter, and Yuan Mei, the Qing Dynasty scholar and artist. The Zhezong Emperor launched his reign by declaring the Yuan Yo era. This lasted 1086 to 1094. 
and all those conservatives who were back in business, thanks to Empress Dowager Gao, became known as the Yuan Yo faction. Reformers and followers of Wang Anshu were laying low, watching helplessly as their years of effort got systematically deconstructed. Even the writings of Wang Anshu were suppressed. It was a good old-fashioned backlash, and the Yuan Yo faction and all who followed them tore these new reforms down. You know that old scenario? After all enemies had been vanquished, the vanquishers turned on each other. Well, in 1091, thanks to more sniping at the upper echelons of power, Su Shi found himself under fire. Again, someone using one of his literary works against him. That's a familiar theme. After serving this stint in Hangzhou, the political winds of change next blew Su Dongpo to Guangdong province. With the death of Empress Dowager Gao in 1093 and Emperor Zhezong coming into his majority, it suddenly wasn't a good time for the conservative Yuanyou faction. Sima Guang had thankfully passed away in 1086 and so didn't live to see this latest purge or to see his own grave desecrated during the backlash. But Su Dongpo did live through this and down to the city of Huizhou, he was sent. Nowadays, that isn't such a bad posting, but back in the Song, serving all the way down in the south in Guangdong or Guangxi province was only a little better than being exiled to the western regions. He stayed in Huizhou until 1097 and then was sent to another posting in Hainan in the city of Danzhou, not too far from Haikou. That was about as far away from the action in Kaifeng as you could possibly get and still be in China. There, in tropical Hainan, Su Dongpo waited out the Zhezong Emperor and his anti-Yuanyo policies. Whilst in Hainan, he built, in 1098, the Dongpo Academy, the Dongpo Shuyuan, still around today. If you go to Danzhou today, there are still all kinds of Su Dongpo tourist sites to see from his time spent there. Su Shi's happy marriage with a second wife ended with her passing in 1093, just prior to his second period of exile to Guangdong. He got married a third time. This wife, Wang Zhaoyun, was a former servant who had been with Su Dongpo since he was 10 years old. A servant she may have been, but if you stick around someone like Su Dongpo long enough, you could learn something. So this third wife... She was more of a companion than anything else. She was quick-witted and served as a kind of literary and artistic muse until her passing in 1095. Su Shi never married again after his third wife passed. With the death of the Zhezong Emperor in 1100, once again, the conservative faction was able to make a comeback. With the new emperor, Huizong, who we discussed in a four-part series, CHP 132 to 135, an attempt was made, didn't work out too well, to bring about some kind of reconciliation between the two factions and to end this destructive cycle of political persecution. Su Dongpo received a royal pardon in 1100 and was given a nice posting in Chengdu, this was not too far from his birthplace in Meishan, the wonderful city of Chengdu, the ancient capital of the Shu Kingdom, 
be a nice place to finish off a stormy but productive government career. For a literatus and tea lover, you could do a lot worse than Chengdu and the surrounding region. However, for Su Dongpo, it wasn't meant to be. On his way to the posting, he became ill and had to stop and rest in the city of Changzhou, Jiangsu province. And it was there he died on August 21st, 1101, 64 years old. And like Elvis, who he shared a birthday with, he became even bigger in death than in life. In a nation of people who revered their scholars, he became one of the preeminent examples of the scholar official who had achieved literary and artistic genius. As officials went, it was said Su Dongpo was more of a man of the people than others who operated at his level. That might be another aspect of Su Dongpo's overall mystique that kept him popular all throughout the centuries. He was a great talent who made a massive contribution to Chinese culture, but had the misfortune to fall prey more than once to the ill winds blowing inside the palace in Kaifeng. He lived through extremely tumultuous times in China politics. The great reforms that Wang Anshu and his gang were implementing were like Lyndon Johnson's Great Society and FDR's New Deal all rolled up into one. Nothing on this scale had ever been tried before in Chinese history. But these hardships, as history shows, inspired Su Shi to produce most of the great works for which he is best remembered. Well, let's tie this one up and stick on the bow. From that four-part Huizong series, you all recall what happened once the Zhezong Emperor was laid in his tomb. I guess it was a good thing that Su Shi died when he did. By 1102, the famous blacklist produced by Huizong's main man, Tsai Jing, named 583 officials divided into seven categories who in one form or another had to be made an example of. Then there was the list of 119 names, specifically from the Yuanyo period, when the conservatives rallied under Zhezong. All those guys, Su Shi, of course, Sima Guang, Su Zhe, Cheng Yi, and others, were all given a severe and posthumous dressing down. The years immediately following his death were bad years for Su Shi. Not only was he targeted for harsh criticism, but his allies and admirers felt the heat as well. After all those years of having been dragged through the mud, Huizong totally rehabilitated Wang Anshi and his benefactor, the Shenzong Emperor. Those most prominent in the Yuanyo faction that had their day at the start of the Zhezong Emperor's reign? Back to the dog pound for them. The Huizong Emperor, well, he did not like Su Shi. For all his own reasons, he was not a fan. And he used his own personal prestige to carry out an anti-Su movement of sorts. There were two works called the Dongpo Collection and the Later Collection. Huizong banned these. And the way they deleted a file off the cloud, the hard drive, and the thumb drive back then was to gather up the printing blocks from each work and destroy them. And that's what Huizong ordered. And for the whipped cream, Huizong extended the criticism of Su Shi to the Sansu, the Three Su's, Su Xun and Su Zhe, and the cherry on top. The repercussions were even felt by Su Shi's disciples as well. If you recall from that four-part Huizong series, Tsai Jing, who was 
Hui Zong's brain, basically, his chancellor, and the most powerful man in Kaifeng, aside from the emperor. Well, his son, Tsai Tao, had gone and done the unthinkable, published some work that put Su Shi in a somewhat positive light. Even he got caught up in the moment, got banished by Hui Zong for a year in 1123. Tsai Jing had to beg the emperor to get his son back. Well, though it's very difficult for me to read it in the original Chinese, I am happy to say from at least a historical point of view, the Huizong Emperor did not succeed in his personal mission to wipe out any trace of Su Shi. A whole lot of stuff somehow made it through the next nine centuries without getting lost to some calamity. We have in our day about 2,700 poems of Su Shi in the Shi, Fu, and Si styles. Got 800 written letters, uh, several original works of calligraphy, and paintings. I'll tell you, once Emperor Huizong got sent packing to the coldest corner of Manchuria, after the Jurchens snatched all that had once been his, Su Shi made an immediate comeback. During the Jin Dynasty, he was very popular indeed. There was this literary group formed by Su Shi back in the day called the Su Men Su Xue Shi, or the Four Scholars at Su Shi's Gate. Zhang Lei, Chao Bu Zhi, Qin Guan, and Huang Tingjian. All their work was highly in demand during the Jin and in the centuries that followed, too. You know how it is in China and elsewhere. The best stuff, if it's really good, keeps getting passed on from generation to generation. From listening to a few young people today, the passion is still there for Su Shi. A lot of his stuff is still very much admired and appreciated. The six-and-a-half-foot-long scroll of Su Shi's Han Shi Tie on display at the National Palace Museum in Taipei is still a big draw. Su Dongpo still remains a big brand name and a powerful inspiration among fans of classical Chinese literature and art. So that's going to be it for now. If you never heard of Su Dongpo before, I hope you learned something. If I piqued your curiosity even one bit, you could go onto your favorite search engine and search for Su Dongpo or Su Shi's poems, and you'll be richly rewarded. We remember Su Dongpo for both his talents and for his participation in a time in Chinese history when major events were happening. And of course, for Dongpo Ro, try it, but don't eat it too often. Otherwise, an angioplasty might be in your cards. This is your host and humble narrator, Laszlo Montgomery, signing off from Los Angeles here in Southern Cali. Take care, everyone, and I hope you'll think about joining me next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.